Gabby with you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. We aim to bring you useful tips and tools by having conversations with various thought leaders and ambassadors in the mental health arena so that if you or a loved one are going through a tough time with your mental health, this might help a little or even better, a lot. On with today's topic of conversation, and it's a big one. Anxiety is described as a feeling of unease, worry, or fear. We all feel anxious at times, but anxiety may be a mental health problem if your feelings are severe or last a long time. Anxiety disorders are amongst the most common mental health problems. According to mentalhealth.org.uk, up to 1 in 20 people in the United Kingdom have generalised anxiety disorder, and it's more common in people aged between 35 and 59. Well, what Joshua Fletcher, or Anxiety Josh, as he's known on social media to his legions of fans, doesn't know about the vast world of anxiety isn't worth knowing. Specialising in the field of anxiety disorders and stress management, he's written several best-selling books on the subject, which I devoured in the space of about a week. He has a podcast dedicated to delving in and breaking down all things anxiety, and he still finds time to run his own busy practice in Manchester. This passion for helping others overcome their disordered anxiety comes from weathering his own crippling struggles. And as Josh is such a busy guy, and at the time I was still based in the US, I had to get up really early to be able to talk to him. But as you are about to hear, it was totally worth it. Welcome, Josh. Thank you so much for taking the time today to chat to us about all things anxiety, which I know in an email you sent to um, the My Possible Self crew, you said is your bread and butter. Is it cool to call you Josh? Because I know it's Joshua in one, two, three of the books. Oh, there we go. There's some nice toilet reading for you. (laughs) Psychotherapist, best-selling author, Podcast. Oh, it's cringy. <laughs> you can say it once, but my God. Oh. You actually are cringy. Uh, podcast host, social media influencer, anxiety specialist, anxiety survivor. Have I left anything out there? No, that, that is a lot of superlatives. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's jump right in, starting at the very beginning by clarifying what exactly an anxiety disorder is versus somebody that's maybe just a pretty anxious because we're in a world that's gone mad, as everybody knows, over the past however many months now, slowly figuring our way out of the pandemic, but stress levels are through the roof. And what what is the difference, in your own words, between somebody who is very anxious versus somebody with disordered anxiety? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a good question. It's one I um, I think more people should be asking. I think anxiety is a really broad statement. It's, it's an umbrella for a lot of different presentations of it. You often hear in conversation, oh, yeah, I get anxiety. Oh, yeah, I know. I've had anxiety. I know what that's about. Mm-hmm. But actually, there's so many different presentations of anxieties. It's quite a... It's quite a, quite an assumption to make. Yeah. For me, person, I think everyone needs to see it as two different things. You've got conventional anxiety, which is outwards anxiety, which is mm-hmm. 
I have worries. I worry about my job. I worry about my relationship. I worry about um, my family. I, I'm mm-hmm. Putting the bins out, mm-hmm. things like that, and and worries that are conventionally uh, external. They're in our lives. They're people. A lot of people can relate to them, um, but they're usually something that can have a has a solution. Has some kind of um, possibility for you to kind of intervene to have some control over. Mm. And, and everyone has that worry everyone everyone in the world has that kind of anxiety um however we can also get anxiety that becomes really excessive and that's when we experience disordered fear and a misinterpretation of the, an intense fight or flight response and what happens when that happens in humans we can then develop an anxiety that's very inwards so this is the second part inwards disordered anxiety so this could be, I don't feel like myself. I suddenly feel weird and I can't stop obsessing about it. This could be every thought I have is what if and I compulsively seek reassurance all the time. This could be OCD. I constantly have to check, do rituals, um, seek reassurance, mental rituals, physical rituals to keep myself going. Maybe I have health anxiety where you misinterpret that threat response and suddenly you feel like you've got stomach cancer or a brain tumor or COVID or something like that. You've got panic disorder, which is panic attacks, mm-hmm. and then fearing panic attacks, agoraphobia, mm-hmm. which is massive since the pandemic. So yeah, that's that's the difference between you know conventional anxiety and then you've got disordered anxiety. And I've I lived with disordered anxiety for a very long time, so mm-hmm. got into what I do. Which I'm going to ask you about in a little bit. But just jumping on the health anxiety, what's the difference between that and say a hypochondriac? In, a, in essence, nothing really. Hypochondriacs is actually kind of a, it's moved on. Hypochondriacs a word that actually we don't really use anymore um, because it's it's more accusatory in its label. Mm. So actually, no, both definitions mean the same. Mm. But health anxiety has actually got a new label under OCD. It's a branch of obsessive compulsive disorder. Think about it. How many times have you Googled something and gone, oh, oh what's that? twinge what's that niggle what's this symptom mm-hmm. uh, and everyone kind of does that but then people with, a, with health anxiety will constantly do that constantly ring their doctors constantly sometimes you ring an ambulance just to you know just in case there's something wrong but yeah, yeah. Um, it becomes a label stop being a hypochondriac well it's through prejudice that people don't actually use that word anymore because it's like it's not accusatory health anxiety is a real thing and it needs the appropriate intervention. I had another question, actually, in regards to the various types of excessive anxiety disorders. And again, this is like going into one of your books. What is the difference between generalised anxiety disorder and an anxiety disorder? What does it mean when it's like generalised? So anxiety disorders are just the name for how your anxiety presents. And generalised anxiety, or GAD, they call it for short, is, uh, is when... Our threat response, our anxiety is always on. And what happens is when our threat response, I say always on, it's on a lot. When it's on a lot, that threat response in our brain constantly tries to find sources for that worry, even though the source usually is just my threat response is on. But that's why people with GAD excessively worry because the brain is constantly suggesting to them, what if it's this? What if it's that? What if that happens? What if you get anxiety? What if that happens? What if this disaster, this catastrophe happens? Um, and people, people with GAD, I know I've had it. It can be quite debilitating. So mm-hmm. GAD is just 
the name for when we're constantly worrying all the time about different things or about the anxiety itself. And that threat response, you know, rarely turns off. Um, obviously, you can turn it off, but yeah, when you're stuck in the cycle, yeah, that's that's usually the title given for CAD. That must be exhausting for the sufferer if it never goes away. Um, Absolutely. There's a very cohesive list in your first two books about the psychological and physical symptoms you may experience if you've got an excessive anxiety disorder. I don't expect you to list them all because there's like 30 for each category. Um, but could you talk about some of the top or, shall we say, most common symptoms and obviously people yeah. can go to your books to check out the full list. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, so the, the most common symptoms of um, excessive anxiety is, uh, number one, uh, derealization, dissociation, which is when you suddenly feel weird, everything feels weird around you, you feel weird in your body, and you don't, you're not quite sure why. You know, you feel maybe a bit drunk or high, even though you're not, mm. because that's, that's the, um, that really frightens people, triggers a lot of people's panic attacks, that. Another one is racing heart rate, um, muscle tension. Mm -hmm. I can't catch a full breath, so kind of labored breathing. Your posture usually goes. Uh, you feel nauseous. There's a knot in your stomach. Uh, your digestion triggers a lot of IBS. Mm -hmm. you, know, you could be bloated. You could have um, pains, chest pains, shooting pains in your chest. Heart palpitations with the heart or the heartbeats, strange skips a beat, things like that. Uh, that's lots of symptoms of, um, of of anxiety and disordered anxiety. Obviously, people with disordered anxiety they'll they'll start to fixate on that, uh, and and that becomes a problem. But in general, they're some of the main ones. But derealization, depersonalization, that dissociation one is one that happens a lot, but not many people talk about. Yeah. Uh, but if you know if you if you're listening and that applies to you, it's very normal. You're not going insane. You're not ill. You're not crazy. It's just a mechanism that your body kicks in when you're really stressed i really liked i can't remember which book it was that i read it in of yours because i've read all three recently but the, the stress jug when you talk about it, it's not just maybe one thing that's stressing you out it's a bunch of stuff and then you get to a point where the jug overflows yeah so i use the analogy of the stress jug to answer the question when people say where does my excessive anxiety come from and for me, you know, it's my theory and I'm pretty confident in my theory because I use it with my clients. But like um, we all have a stress jug, which is a metaphor for our ability to tolerate stress. Um, so, you know, if you're stressed, if you're a parent and you're stressed with your kids, that goes in the jug. If you've got relationship issues, that goes in the jug. If you're stressed at work, you pour that into the jug, too. But that's not enough to get panic attacks and things like that uh, and excessive anxiety. But then, then let's say there's things in the jug that's already been there all your life. Maybe grief, maybe abuse, maybe trauma, maybe mm. neglect. Maybe there's stuff that you've just held on to for so long and you've just buried it away. That stays in the jug too. And then let, put a pandemic in there, put other <laughs> things in there, and suddenly the jug fills up and up and up. And when it overflows, our threat response in our brain doesn't understand all these modern subjective stresses mm. it just gets confused it goes why you know gabby why are you so stressed you must be in danger i'll help you now i have a load of adrenaline a load of cortisol mm. i'll dissociate you as well just in case you're uh, you're in danger and, and and it's really really tricky because most people 
don't see that. They just see that as a panic attack, an adrenaline rush, mm. and it frightens them so much that they don't want it to happen again when actually all that's happening is that the jug's full and that ancient fight or flight mechanism kicks in. Mm-hmm. And if that catches us off guard, it can scare us. I wonder as well, it can be a delayed response, can't it? It can be something that might happen. And I can use myself as an example here because I um, got diagnosed with a panic disorder about five or six years ago. And I do I do take medication for it. And then after reading your books, I was like, maybe there's another way. And I think about how mine will come on out of nowhere. So it, sometimes I'll, I'll have gone to bed. I'll have just, it's almost like my brain and my body are, it's like the stresses are sort of catching up with themselves. And I was in um, Nashville. We had a, a deadly tornado just over a year ago, and it got so close to me. I mean, I was literally like, "Oh, this is this is how I'm going to go." This is. Um, oh, wow. It was. Yeah. I mean, and and people did lose their lives, and it was horrendous. But it was, I think, two or three days later boom, huge panic attack out of nowhere. I just started a new job. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it been a tour, you know, it was like, it didn't happen straight away. And I think that's maybe why people get confused when it manifests, Absolutely. because Absolutely, it's like, yeah. where has this come from? Definitely. And all, it usually does trigger with relief um, after good news. But also to answer that, the stress drug isn't just negative stresses. So, yeah, okay, a tornado, I think we can agree, is a negative stress. Um, <laughs> but positive stresses too. So I know a lot of, it's very common for panic attacks and excessive anxiety or OCD or anything to start to surface after a positive life event, like a wedding, or you've moved house or a new job, or you've just overcome a scary a health scare and you feel relieved, or... You just and then that's positive stress, isn't it? Think about it. Excitement, yeah, that goes into the jug too, and that's okay. Excitement and things that are okay, but our nerves are really sensitized. So your your nerves would have been incredibly sensitized after coming close to a tornado. Mm. And then once you start to relax and okay, I'm safe now, mm-hmm. but I'm going to start work and job. There's some other stresses. So that jug. Mm. on the precipice of being full anyway and yeah you're right you can just be sat there one day and you have an adrenaline rush it happens to me now i happen four or five weeks ago just in the middle of the night adrenaline rush or if you want to call it a panic attack yeah and i know what it is so it's like 10 minutes later i was back asleep again yeah but many years ago i'd have gone oh my god what's wrong with me am i dying i'd have rang and it's just like i know what this is now wow 10 minutes later you receive that's amazing the word panic attack gets thrown around a lot somebody pops up and scares somebody you know air quotes scares somebody and it's like oh you gave me a panic attack and if you actually do suffer from them it's it's not something to be taken lightly or sort of thrown around is it because well, put it this oh. way, you, you never forget your first panic attack, do you? I know you've shared your story about being at work and making a brew. Mm. And Did you know straight away what was – did you realise it was a panic attack? No. no, I had no idea what was happening. That's what made me develop an anxiety disorder because then I started to fixate and try to work out what had happened. I oh. thought I was – I thought I'd broken my brain. I thought I was going crazy. Um I was obsessed with my physical symptoms, uh, my mental symptoms. It, it had my attention, and I and I shifted my life solely 
to cater for the fact that just in case I had a panic attack. So I'd avoid, I'd threat monitor, I'd keep an eye on it. Um, and it was only months later when I found out it was a panic attack. It didn't even feel like a panic attack. I just felt like I'd lose my mind. Mm. Um, and then and after that, I discovered what anxiety was. And because I didn't really have the help for it at the time, and my doctor looked at me like I was crazy, and I tried all these things to make it go away, and it didn't go away. Um, I finally, luckily, thankfully, found a resource, and I was reassured that, oh, what's going on here? And actually, yeah, you're just, your adrenal glands sensitized, your nerves are sensitized. And at the time, it made sense. I was going through a lot. It was very difficult. Yeah, It was a, a very difficult time of life, and it built up and built up. And then, yeah, it was the perfect storm. My life was the perfect storm yeah. for having that panic and yet it it feels like it comes from nowhere but afterwards so when i had the panic the other night that nocturnal panic in the middle of the night i was like <sighs> i looked at it with a sense of intrigue like why am i panicking actually yeah the last four weeks have been really stressful mm. i've not taken time out for me probably had one too many beers <laughs> not eaten properly yeah oh uh, yeah here we go that's Again, an, another mini perfect storm right. for panic. So, you, so you got to look after you got to you got to look after yourself a bit better. But it's fine. It's just like it happened. I went back to sleep. Done. Forgot about it the day after. <laughs> so do you, do you think like you'll always live with it? Then do you think if it's like if if this is the way we're sort of wired that the, it's going to happen, but it's just understanding your body enough to realize like like you said that it's like oh uh, this is why it's happening, and then you can get yourself out of it really quickly yeah well the irony is like the worst narrative around anxiety is then people see it as a disease and like, what's the cure what's the cure and there's loads of anxiety cowboys out there selling you cures and tinctures <laughs> and, and they do my head in. yeah there's just really unethical people out there yeah um who are not qualified you know that run anxiety programs things like the linden method and stuff like that so the, none of these people are qualified and yet they promise you a cure and people have internalized that cure that that, that word cure whereas there's nothing wrong with you to begin with mm -hmm. so like for me yeah sometimes my anxious response goes off so does everyone else's you know but it's just the content of your attention and the content of your thoughts that that affect you. So, Gabby, if you, you know, you, you say you're down as a panic disorder mm. and immediately you give a medication for it, mm. well, you've internalized that now there's something wrong with you. Whereas myself the other week, not to compare, but you know. <laughs> no, go ahead. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm having an adrenaline rush. Okay, whatever. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if, yeah. Well, and I don't want to make this part all about myself, but in this circumstance, I think it's important to share my sort of story as well is that when I went to see the doctor when it initially happened, the word anxiety was never used. And then I was given my medication and I, and I, and I do think it, it, I guess it does help because I certainly wasn't having panic attacks every day like I was, but then living in America and the pandemic and then the tornado and everything kind of built up again where I think my body actually overrode the medication I was on and I was really badly panicking again and struggling and had to find somebody over here. And I saw them, told them my medical history, said, oh, I've got a panic disorder. And um, we had 
a very long consultation. The word anxiety has never been used in any of our conversations. And then fast forward to more recently, I started working with my possible self and we were looking at what guests to have for the podcast and what subject areas we wanted to make sure we covered. And that's how I discovered you and started reading your books. And then I started reading. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. That You didn't even equate the two. I didn't even uh, equate well, the well, two. Well, the thing I say in the first book all the time, it's just anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> it's just anxiety. Uh, and people, but yeah. but and not to take away from you know doctors on either side of the pond, because I I, I thought I, they were both great. I thought they were really helpful. I mean, I've been to my GP so many times for headaches, fatigue, muscle soreness. You know, they've looked at my diet, they've done blood tests and everything, and then I'm going <laughs> trying to fix it. Yeah, and I'm going through, and I'm like looking at all the symptoms, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, and then I was like wait a minute and it was that kind of aha moment where I was like okay this just can't be me then this is clearly going to be happening to a lot of people that they're like you know you just I just thought oh it's you know it's like being a diabetic and having your insulin it's just like I've got a panic disorder and I take my pill and but that's the that's the that's the dangerous narrative around it all I'm not going to bash doctors but doctors need to know a hell of a lot um about us physically Mm-hmm. And so I don't blame them for seeing it as a physical problem yeah. or something to, to medicate. Yeah. Um, when I, so I do like the word disorder. Lots of psych, psychotherapists and counsellors don't like the word disorder. I, I like it when it comes to anxiety. It's incredibly important um, because it helps you to identify what, what it is that, that, that was needed. Mm. Um, at that time. So if you're like, oh, I've got OCD, panic disorder. Panic disorder is very specific. It's very simple, actually. I've had panic disorder. I was diagnosed it for a year. It's very simple. I was so scared once. I, I panicked. I had a panic attack and it scared me so much. I don't want it to happen again. So I'll do anything that I can to make it not happen again. And so when you give someone with panic disorder medication, they never learn that they can tolerate the anxiety and all the credit goes to the Xanax or whatever it is. I mean, that's why Xanax is banned in the UK because they found out that people with panic disorder were just popping a Xanax every time they panicked and then realising that they couldn't function without it and then they never got over the panic disorder. Wow. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. That's why it's, the benzodiazepines in the UK are really limited. In America, they're, they're like sweets. <laughs> <laughs> the candy. It's true. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like, have a Xanax. Okay, great. Uh, like, no. And, and I'll be honest, these are taken for fun back in my recreational days. <laughs> such a dangerous drug um yeah. gotta be very careful don't get me wrong some people need them some people who get so distressed particularly with ptsd or anything like that absolutely you take your xanax no shame in that mm. um you've been through trauma mm. and self-care but in general like it's just an adrenaline rush it's panic. you're just fearing your panic attack so you build your life around it um and that's what i talk about you know mm. in my books and things it's like see you know if there isn't like a ptsd element to it mm. then go practice exposure you know, turn off that anxious response yourself. You get the credit for it. Yeah, I know that you 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 endorse that kind of like um, sort of jumping in head first and mm. like sitting with it. And you and you say uh, again, I think it might be your latest book, "Untangle Your Anxiety," where you say just um, keep doing what you're doing when it happens. Do what non-anxious you would do. Why would that be important to do what non-anxious you would do despite 
your threat yeah. response going absolutely bananas. Yeah. But what happens if, if you're it, just watching the telly or you were like reading a book and it comes on? Just do your best. Do your best to concentrate because it's an attentional problem. Think about it. Panic disorder occurs when all our attention goes inwards or excessive anxiety where it goes inwards. It's disordered. It's the whole point. Non-anxious mm. me wouldn't be sat here scanning my body, searching for the first signs of anxiety, misinterpreting symptoms. No, non-anxious me would just be getting on with the day. And obviously, I'm not negating the fact that disordered anxiety is terrifying. I know I've had it. But mm. the mistake I was making was that I was waiting for it to pass. I was trying to fix myself for it to pass. But actually, each day, my brain was watching and observing me not living my normal life mm. so my brain was convinced i was broken but when i started to live normally as if i was not, not was as if i was not broken as if actually i'm gonna do what i would non-anxious josh would do regardless of whether my threat response is off mm. and that's where i noticed the magic the magic is that i went into asda or walmart if you're in america and mm -hmm. i was petrified and I just did what a non-anxious me would do and the panic passed and I felt really good. And the next time I went to shopping, wasn't as anxious. And the next time until to the point where you start to think about it. But if I'm sat there and I'm about to walk into the shop and, and I'm scared and then I go, oh yeah, I need my magic bottle of water or I need my magic sweets or my magic Xanax or whatever. Mm -hmm. I never learned that I could tolerate that anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so therefore I will always fear it um and everyone can tolerate their anxiety that that kind of anxiety anyway i am really interested in your story because is that is that how you got from being agoraphobic it was so crippling your anxiety to doing stand-up I, I used to do stand-up <laughs> you got to be funny to do stand-up that's that's the thing i was that's the thing i was missing um but yeah it, i i did stand up to prove that i could do it so i couldn't leave the house and I used to do stand-up before the anxiety disorder and then ah. just to prove that I could do it again, which was really cool. Uh, but my motivation, uh, I left it all behind to you know, do what I do, do psychotherapy, write my books, things like that, help people, help myself, you know, uh, and do these things, do a job that I really like. So when did you realise you had a book in you? I read a book called At Last a Life by Paul David and it's all right. It's a guy who had panic disorder. And what an amazing one, review. <laughs> It's all right. <laughs> no, it was, it was, but the first two chapters made me feel seen. And I'll, I, I kind of owe my life to Paul David to that. It made me feel seen, like what I wasn't going crazy. Mm. And, and I do. I think he did kind of save my life a bit with that. And then I was like, okay, I'm not going crazy. And then that gave me the confidence to then stop ruminating, which is when I was sat there thinking about how I feel for hours body scanning and checking to see if my anxiety is there. I was like, oh, okay, no, there's nothing wrong with me. Let's try and calm these nerves down. Um, and then obviously I read stuff by my hero, Claire, Dr. Claire Weeks, who was the first pioneer of talking about anxiety disorders. Um, and then I, it just grew from there. And I just learned more and more and tried to help mm -hmm. people the best I can. You certainly do. You've got a tribe of fit followers on social media and then goodness knows how many people have read your books by anxious now tribe. we're all <laughs> we're, we're the anxious tribe yeah okay let's talk about recovery then 
Um, you say part of recovering from anxiety is getting the best formulation of what your anxiety is. How, how do you get on the path? Like, there's not enough of you, basically, is there? Therapists aren't necessarily essential, but the psychoeducation is. So once you know, I recovered without a therapist mm-hmm. um, from, from rock bottom. I'm not, I'm not saying if you need a therapist, then you're not doing No, of course you do. And that's why I'm a therapist. You can speed up the process a lot faster with someone who understands anxiety disorder, so essential. Recovery, in a nutshell, is when you are willing to lean into uncertainty and discomfort. So if you if you avoid something because you're scared of how it will make you feel, mm-hmm. then recovery is when this will probably scare me and make me feel anxious, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. I'm quite confident to do it anyway. And that's recovery. And what you do there is you teach the brain the threat response. The anxiety itself is not scary. Like, of course it's scary, but when we begin to fear fear and fear the symptoms of fear, that's when we get panic disorder and GAD and disorder anxiety and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to, to recovery is I'm willing to just walk towards fear because I know I can tolerate fear. Um and that's a lot for disordered anxiety, yeah. Obviously, not forgetting conventional anxiety. Conventional anxiety, you can sit down with friends and loved one, love ones and a counsellor and, and work out solutions to that anxiety. And that's okay, that's cool. But when you know it's intense fear for stuff that you know is safe, that's the stuff that you need to practice building up to. I'm not saying just go and run to the top of a mountain if you're, if you're agoraphobic, but you build up and you build up and you build up and... In therapy, it's called exposure, and it's called graded exposure. So grade your exposure a little bit at a time. Okay, and versus flooding exposure, which is like jumping headfirst. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I've done that, but in general, no, I'm I'm sensitive. I'm a worrier. I'd like I'd like to grade grade my exposure first. You know, uh, that's why you build up to doing things, and it's just as powerful as flooding. The anxiety scale is something that you swear by. I love the anxiety scale, yeah. So in cognitive, cognitive I've pinched it from CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, um, and they, they use something called SUDS, which is Subjective Units of Distress. And basically, you scale your anxiety from 1 to 10. 10 is utmost panic, the world's ending, reality's dissolving, I'm dying. 1 is... Hey, I'm chilled out on a beach, drinking cocktails, having a really nice time. Goals. Not caring the world. And five is that simmering, ooh, I feel like something, something bad's going to happen, but I can still function. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's all scaling is really important because it helps you to realize that your anxiety isn't fixed. It's not permanent. It goes up and down throughout the day. Mm. Sometimes it's really low. Sometimes it's really high. Now, when you're practicing exposure, it's going to shoot up high because your brain's conditioned to think that what you're avoiding is scary. Mm-hmm. So when you go and do that, it's going to be high. But with exposure, the more you do it, the less that number, the less the, the more that number comes down, and the and the less um, highly it's ranked. So if, if if something scares you, like driving in a car, and you get in and it gives you nine out of ten anxiety scale. If you keep practicing in a car and doing that you'll notice that actually I'm only a six out of 10 now and a five out of 10 now. Actually, it's come down to a three. I'm not really bothered at all. And the next thing you'll know, 
because I've had driving anxiety. It's that you're driving along for hours and you've not even thought about driving because um, you're thinking about something else. Yeah, yeah. You want to try driving over in Nashville, Josh. It's uh, the worst drivers in the world. Are they? Are they the <laughs> worst drivers in the world? I know, I've driven in Bulgaria. That was Ooh. that was scary. I think they, in Europe, statistically, more crashes than any other European city, uh, European country. Wow. That was fun. Um, so we've talked a lot about that kind of looking inwards and, and sort of realising symptoms and, and looking after ourselves but what about loved ones if you and again I just encourage anybody listening to turn to your books um, for a, a better understanding of, of anxiety disorders and, and your podcast as well the panic pod but when we're seeing it in in loved ones where we're like this this looks more than somebody who's a bit stressed or anxious or nervous this is stopping mm. them from living a, a full life if you will what is do you it- advise it's important to just have compassion. Lots of people, unfortunately, get frustrated with people with disorder and anxiety, particularly with agoraphobia and OCD. You know, you have the old tropes of, well, if you've got nothing to worry about and stuff like that, but that, that's not how anxiety works. If you've got someone who's really struggling with anxiety, sit with them and learn about it with them because that will be that can be so helpful. You can express your love that way. Patience and compassion, and they will get there. But if you try to force and shame people out of anxiety, you're actually making it worse. You're not helping the problem. You're not helping your own frustration. You can overcome anxiety, but you've got to do it the right way. You've got to lose this rhetoric of kind of being like emotionally stiff as well. Like, oh, you don't show your emotions. Things like just one in well, it was one in five people had an anxiety disorder before the pandemic. I'd guess it was even more. Mm. I mean, my podcast listens and book sales are shot through the roof. Not because I've done anything different, because people's anxiety has has increased. Yeah, um, we live yeah. in a tough time, don't we? It's the stresses that we have to endure now. And I, I think about um, and I really like the fact that you and Dean address it in your book about what we learn as a kid from the voices around us that factors into you know how we develop as an adult yeah the inner dialogue learned from our youth yeah well it's just that's where conventional therapy is really good it's like how you measure your self-esteem your value how you value your identity how you see yourself what's important to you how do you give yourself merit? Um, but also kind of absorbed, interjected beliefs as well. Maybe, you know, if you grew up in a pretty tricky home, if, you, if your mum and dad were quite absent or quite neglectful, mm-hmm. maybe they're quite harsh or perhaps they were really lovely, but their love was conditional, you know, and those high expectations there. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things play a role and then, I mean, in humanistic therapy, we call them interjections. And what is it that you interjected from those experiences? So if you've grown up with a sibling and who's into sports and they got all the attention, all the praise, you might interject that you're not as good as your sibling or mm. it's important to be into sports. Mm. You know, uh, if, if, you're, if you're gay and you grow up with two parents that you adore, but they're homophobic, then you might interject that, well, to be gay is, means you're not good enough. Yeah, again, living in the like South, that. very religious. I mean, yeah. I have a lot of gay friends and the stories 
are shocking. Yeah, yeah, and it's still prejudice is still there, and and, and prejudice. That's why people who, who are on the receiving end of prejudice usually get lots of low self esteem because because of these interjected messages. Mm. Uh, whether you're bullied, stuff like that. But just remember, they're just interjected messages. They're not fact. Your thoughts are not facts. And I always recommend just kind of talking through that with an esteem-based counsellor you know, or, or a therapist. When you do go to a doctor, because I think that tends to be the first step, especially when you're experiencing physical symptoms uh, like headedness, chest pain, heart racing, dizziness. You, you go to your doctor, but you've got like a 10-minute window, haven't you, to your general practitioner, and they've got to do the best they can in a short amount of time, um, mm. which is why conversations like these are, are so important, and, and thank you. So for people that are listening to this and thinking, yeah, this is sounding very familiar, and what like what's your advice? And I also think, and I love the fact that you try and help as many people as you can and offer a lot of advice for free. Mm. I, th I think there's a fear for people that maybe don't have a, a lot of additional money that paying for a therapist, it's mm. seen as maybe a luxury rather than a necessity. It, it can be. It depends. Like, for me, I always see it as a necessity. Like, people don't treat their brains like they treat their teeth. <laughs> or they don't, you know, or anything else. Like, I, I often have this conversation. It was with a friend, actually, said, you know, uh, I need to... Is there, is there any free therapy that you can I can access because I can't afford it? Um, and yet, you know, I saw him the other week and he bought a round of drinks for everyone, <laughs> 40 pounds, and you could have just spent... You could have just seen the therapist with that money. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, right. you know, it's not that dear, you know. <laughs> like, like, you yeah. can find accessible therapy. But you're right, if people... If, if, if therapy isn't accessible for you, psychoeducation is the way forward. Books, podcasts, things like that. Not just mine. People that talk about disordered anxiety properly um, and OCD properly and things like that. Because even with your doctor, you, nine times out of ten, and this is my own arbitrary number, but from my experience, doctors will not know about anxiety disorders. Doctors have got to go learn a, a lot, a little about, a hell of a lot. I'm not bashing doctors, but I've spent years understanding anxiety disorders, and that's my one-trick pony. I'm not going to expect doctors to know all about it too, as well as diagnosing your, your, your stomach problems and your migraines and things like that. You know, um, so yeah, find the right information on it. Also, you've got to be careful. It's so important to work with people who do understand anxiety disorders if, if you do struggle with excessive anxiety. Because unfortunately, in conventional therapy, anxiety disorders are often missed. It's often kind of dismissed or assumed to be trauma this word, mm -hmm. this overword used, I've said before, of trauma. Like, and then so people try to get to the root of, the, of this, but actually that doesn't help disordered anxiety because yeah. it thrives off your attention. So when you spend a whole year with a therapist giving it attention, going round in circles, not finding the root because there is none, you know, you've got a jug and you can go work through what's in the jug, but there's no root cause. Right. Yeah. Um, um, then yeah, you've got to be careful with what kind of therapist you work with too. I did notice that, well, I had to Google it actually, good old Google, that, you know, the difference between a, a therapist and a psychotherapist. A... I have no idea what it is. Do you know? <laughs> I, I just, 
I just well, I just call myself that because it sounds more cool. <laughs> <laughs> a, a psychotherapist yeah. uses talk therapy to treat people for emotional problems and mental illnesses versus a mm. therapist, which is a broader term. A therapist has mm. often been used to encompass social workers mm. and a variety of counsellors. Yeah, yeah, you can be a therapist, physiotherapist, like, but yes, I like that psychotherapy. It's talk therapy. Like it. Let's wrap things up then with um, another plug for your resources. Untangle Your Anxiety is the latest book. I have to say your first one, though, Panicking About Panic really, really helped. I mean, that was literally like, I would never consider myself as textbook, Josh. In fact, I've quite always prided myself that my family yeah. are like, oh, she's the kooky one. Oh, she's mm. off in, you know, she's off in Ibiza. Mm. She's off in Nashville. And then I read your book and I was like, I'm textbook. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's panic that's, that's panic and anxiety I yeah. wrote that before I was a therapist I wrote that as 23 years old that is really yeah. wild That the way you describe the whoosh as well I've never been able to articulate you know yeah. exactly what goes on and that sort of like the pacing and the, the lightheadedness and the, everything that you did I was reading it with my, my jaw dropped yeah this describing the phenomenology of panic disorder is so important I think yeah um because it helps people to feel seen yeah it's all amazing stuff and i believe book number four is on the way and it's intrusive thoughts oh yes i love working with intrusive thoughts all the bizarre thoughts and things like that really excited for that when do i add that to the reading list <laughs> that'll be out in a month just under a month's <gasps> oh, time oh it's, yeah, it's soon wow Oh, that's yeah, yeah. amazing. It's soon. It'll be done soon. I'm very looking forward to it. And you've got something yeah. online that's coming as well. Yeah, I've got some anxiety courses, yeah. Mm. I've started the School of Anxiety, and these are courses, group courses for people where it's a video course. Me, I'm videoed, guiding you through certain things, and then you join your own private group of 12 people, and you work together through the course. And then I pop mm. in once a week and do Q&As and see how you're getting on. It's just a way of um, accessing easier to access you know? right right yeah and it's more affordable than working with me like one-on-one -on -one, right you know because you, you know he's yeah it's, it's, it's an it's a, it's an affordable form of i mean i, I gotta be careful i don't call it therapy i call it coaching because okay. uh, of, li of legalities but yeah uh it's an affordable it's an affordable form of psychoeducation yes yes yeah. the panic room.co.uk Panicroom.co.uk, yeah, that's what it'll be. Um, yeah, Anxiety Josh on in Instagram. 100 million oh, followers and counting. Not 100 million, <laughs> I wish. My gosh. Yeah, I'd never have to do anything again if it was 100 million followers. Did that kind of happen gradually, that all the followers, or did it? was it kind of pretty, like, overnight you were like, oh, my Lord, <laughs> where did 50,000 people come Gradu from? It was gradually. It started, started to build. I poured a lot of um, effort into growing my social media, and I got some advice and stuff and then my co-author helped grow my page and right and it helped because i was already an author so people who read my books can find me found me on there so it grew that way nice and organically i mean i just i feel like i have to squeeze in this one question which is like how do you have how do you find the time to see people to like run your business to write three books to host a podcast to do an online coaching training course like are you one of those people that, like Margaret Thatcher, had for, was famous for having four hours sleep a night, and that was no? I, I night owl. I stay up till I, I finish work at eight pm, and I'll chill out, play games till one am, whatever, and I'll sleep in what to what I want, and then I just make sure that my time is is efficient. I also have help as well, so I can 
you know, I've just recently hired a personal assistant. Over time, I got efficient with it. I never used to be, but just over time, you just get more efficient with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time today. This has been amazing. So thank you thank so much. This was worth getting up much. at 4am for. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Gosh. I might even go for a nap now. And <laughs> Thank you, Gabby, for having me on. Thank you. Hi, Gabby, back with you. I hope you enjoyed the My Possible Self episode on anxiety. What an incredible wealth of information Josh Fletcher is and a really cool guy as well. Uh, That's it for today's show. If you don't already follow us, we're My Possible Self on the gram and I'm at Radio Gabby. If you dig this podcast, be sure to check out the My Possible Self app. We have a wealth of clinically certified content that has been shown to reduce anxiety, stress and low mood. From movement videos, meditations, grounding exercises, a mood tracker, sleep stories, a podcast series and a whole bunch more. Just type My Possible Self in the app store and we will be there for you. Until next time, take care and look after yourselves. Bye.